Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following program contains the names of people who have died. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration. I just want to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. And the idea too within the education I do is that if we really understand the conceptual underpinnings of what the symbols are telling us and, and why they're put together in the way they are, then we also can teach students to reflect on what that means and means for them. And to me, that would breathe more life into learning of mathematics because they, they, historically what, the way that we, we learn mathematics for the school system is very much a disconnected form of knowledge. Indigenous knowledge is in contemporary studies, culture and science and inspiring and resourcing the next generation of First Nations scientists. Decolonise the lab coat because, you know, as you'll find out, our mob have been doing science for 65,000 plus years and I love sport and art, but they're not the be-all and end-all for our people. I have to say I have a I love uh, crime investigation so I was very interested in your first forensic scientist chapters as well which I guess speaks to the fact that you've done this as I just mentioned the beautiful illustrations by Black Douglas as a children's book This is speaking out I'm Larissa Berent Indigenous knowledge systems have formed the basis of First Nations cultures around the world for millennia, and here in Australia we are, of course, home to the world's oldest living culture. Often passed down through oral traditions, our stories demonstrate a deep understanding of the world we live in, how it works, and how we relate to it. These stories cover a number of areas known today as science, including astronomy, mathematics, and biology. Tonight we're exploring how these ancient concepts are being applied in a modern context complementary to Western knowledge systems and how an innovative education program is inspiring a new generation of First Nations scientists. Professor Chris Matthews is a Quandamook man who earned a PhD in applied mathematics from Griffith University and is the chair of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Mathematics Alliance, ATSIMA, that aims to transform mathematics education for First Nations students. He works at transforming the science curriculum at all levels to include First Nations knowledges. Chris is also the Associate Dean Indigenous Leadership and Engagement in the Science Faculty at the University of Technology, Sydney. So, Chris, welcome to Speaking Out. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get a bit more into your work and your research, can we find out a bit about you, and I wonder if you can tell us where you grew up and what shaped your understanding of who you are and your values. Well, I, I'm actually from the Kwanamuka people of Mindurabar or Stradbroke Island just off the coast of Brisbane here, but I actually grew up away from my community up in a place called Toowoomba. My uh, mother's family is, is from Stradbroke and uh, my grandfather moved to Toowoomba on the uh, Hinson Hospital, so we... we we have strong connection with hospitals with our family. I mean, I think because our community too had uh, benevolent asylums and, 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 and things like that, there was a strong uh, medical history when um, colonisation happened on Stradbroke. So we're sort of connected through that. But even traditionally, though, um, there's connections between Toowoomba and, and the island as well. For me, Toowoomba is an interesting place because it's um, quite conservative and really conservative in its views. And I suppose what really sort of shaped who I am and, and, the, and the values that I hold, also the passion that I hold too, was from those experiences. I, I, I went to school up there and a lot of the time I was the only Aboriginal kid within that class, in that school, and you know I was pretty much a target for other kids, but also, unfortunately, um, teachers as well. So I never really had any positive role models from that, from that regard, but knew what uh, racism was like and how that, that affected me through my life. Interestingly, though, when you know when you actually think about as a child growing up with this around you, and that's you know started when I was fairly young, you do build resilience, but you also build um, strategies to sort of protect yourself as well. So my the way I actually ended up protecting myself was getting heavily involved in computing. Like I, I could actually hide within in the computer itself. So so I went to uh, high school in the 80s and finished in 87. So it was a sort of period when. Um, computers started to come up. Something you'd buy for your home, you know, you could buy them at that stage. Like the uh, Commodore 64, people who remember them. 
Yes, um, yes, I, I hate to say yes because <laughs> I'm showing my age, but yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, I, so I actually, you know, put my energy in learning how to program at that time. And at that time, I got interest in uh, the, the intersection between mathematics and computing, which is, you know, might be a bit odd. But what I often put it down to was that um, as a kid, I had always had a strong interest in science fiction, you know. So Star Trek and Star Wars was always a big feature for me. And I think in a lot of ways, Star Trek was one of those sort of, you know, it projected itself as a positive future, you know, this nice utopia was going on within, within Star Trek. Uh, but also strongly connected with Spock, I think, because um, Spock was still experiencing the racism, if you like, within Star Trek, and and but also dealing with it in his own way. And I, I think you know had that that sort of it's weird to say, but I think Spock was a bit of a role model for me. I think that's what got me into computing and to think about technology and things like that. Well, it's um, interesting to hear you say that, and I'm not surprised because actually there's a lot of very interesting race politics in Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. You know. You know, when you got the uh, African American woman who's a who's a telephone people ask the telephone, <laughs> and you got the captain who's the who's the macho American playboy. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff playing off in Star Trek, especially yeah. in the newer ones where they have different the different alien races give rise to different race politics as well. So there's, there's it might there actually are a lot of black fellas who do like Star Trek. Yeah, yes, of course, yeah. But you are the first one who I've heard say that Doctor Spock <laughs> was a role model, and and I was interested in that because, of course, so many people have the same negative experiences at school that you did, especially in that era where it was still incredibly common to have teachers who who didn't see the capacity of Indigenous children. There was a lot of deficit thinking around and a lot of racism in the playground and the classroom. And was there anyone else who became a, a bit of an inspiration or a role model for you, given, you know, you've said that there, there weren't many around you in the school environment? Yeah, well, I think that's why I hooked on to a fictional character in some sense because, um, you know, in that realm of education, you know, like I've always had family to look to and, you know, mm. family supported me. We always went back to Stradbroke Island, so I've always had a strong connection to place there and my Aboriginality was strong, all that sort of stuff. And, that, and I got that from my family, so that's for me is a very positive thing, um, which I've passed on to my kids as well. But in terms of that future thinking and education and what it might mean to do science and mathematics, you know, there wasn't anybody in particular that was a strong role model for me. And I always felt like, you know, you're, you're on your own, you know, and I suppose in some sense as a child growing up, the only way I could look towards was these other characters that were sitting on the, on the screen. Um, and I think that's why I hooked onto them, I think. And like them, you've gone to explore brave new frontiers, particularly, you know, yeah. uh, you were the first Aboriginal person I'd ever met who had got a PhD in mathematics. And I guess one of the things I was interested to ask you about was, you know, we we certainly weren't encouraged to do science and maths when we were younger. You know, obviously it wasn't a pathway often seen for us as, as Aboriginal kids. I often tell the story I was taken out of economics and put into home economics by teachers at my school as a reflection of what those times were like. And yet you chose it as a profession and having had such, you know, such difficult experiences in the classroom have become, you know, a really uh, influential educator. What led you to think that this was actually what you were going to do as a profession? Well, I think it was more, um, I knew I wanted to get out of Toowoomba. I knew I wanted to have a different experience. I, I knew that I was good at mathematics and computing. So the obvious attraction to get into someone like university was to do, to continue with that on that pathway. So that's that's pretty much, I just continued on the pathway I've, I've set out for myself. I didn't, didn't sort of intentionally say I'm going to be a, a mathematician or an academic or anything like that. But I knew my pathway out of Toowoomba and to, to some other direction or some way you know, better uh, was was to follow this line and see where it took me. And I suppose within that, you know, also I've developed that passion too. You know, if I learn this stuff, you know, how can that benefit myself, but also my own community and all Aboriginal and other other Aboriginal people within in Australia as well. You know, where, where will this really ultimately take take me? Because I remember in, in a in a you know a year twelve sort of career interview. One, the question asked me, what do you really want to do? And my response was, I really want to benefit my own people, you know, because I've experienced the worst of it, you know, and, and there's, you know, in order to do something that would contribute to, towards that, 
you know. So with that, I went into university not really knowing where it was going to take me. Um, and I even had a lot of people around me asking me, what the hell are you doing maths for, you know, because people <laughs> were going into things like, you know, becoming a lawyer because, you know, because there was need for, for lawyers, there's need for doctors, there was a need for teachers, for example. But why a mathematician? I said, just all I could answer is like, this is what I do, this is what I know, you know, I, I like it, you know, <laughs> at that point in time. There's two things about that that I, I really love. One is really basically what you were saying was you followed your passion and I think that's such great advice for people. And the second thing is it's really consistent no matter what that passion is. I see this in, you know, so many students having worked in higher education myself for longer than it's polite to say that, you know, there's so many of, of our people that are really motivated with their education to improve the community. And I really see that in your work. And I have to say, I've never thought of myself as somebody who's very good with maths and I feel very intimidated by them. But there was something I saw you say that really transformed how I felt about it and made me see the world really differently. And it's the way that you describe that mathematics is in us as people and it's all around us in nature. And I just thought that that helped me see the world really differently in a way I understood. And I was wondering if you could share that philosophy with us. Yeah, look, I think it's important to sort of recognise too that at university and even a bit beyond that, as I started my career as a research mathematician, I really am immersed myself in what it means to be a mathematician and in particular a computer modeler. So that was my career for a while there. So I was really dealing with what, what you know, in the maths world they call problems. They all have to problemize everything, these problems. And the one I was working on was about protecting groundwater and stuff like that. So I felt like the work I was doing was benefiting communities like mine on the, on the island that was, was you know, did have um, sand mining and where there was waterways that, that potentially could be, could be polluted from waste. So there was a benefit for thinking about this for me and also potentially the community I come from and other communities. So I saw that as a good thing, you know, like a country type, type application of mathematics. And as I sort of worked through this community, it actually become more obvious that Really, the maths we're doing was benefiting more the industries around us. So, you know, I could actually protect groundwater in a way from what I was doing, uh, invent a way of doing that. But then if I did do that, then that could be uh, justification for more exploitation, if you know what I mean. So the industry was about exploiting environments. So there was a sort of a struggle of values there for me, if that makes sense. And then, and at the same time, it was actually Ailey Morton Robertson gave, gave me a paper about Maori mathematics. And that was the first time I started thinking, well, what does that mean? You know, what does Aboriginal mathematics mean? You know, does this really exist? Because I was really heavily entrenched within the maths world, if you know what I mean, um, and, and the way they thought about things, you know. So so that one paper sort of started switching my mind to thinking, well, what does it mean for us? So what, what it, it's taken me a while, but I, I, I went back into my community to do my first maths education project. I actually shifted a bit to um, QUT at that time. I worked with a bloke called Tom Cooper, Professor, Professor Tom Cooper, through the Yumi Deadly Maths Project. And um, we started to do some maths education directly for Aboriginal kids. And I wanted to do one for my, in my own community. And the thing that I set myself is, you know, how can I teach something like algebra, but value Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, their culture, language, and things like this. You know, how can we value ourselves and feel like you as an Aboriginal student are evade within the education, but also teach something like algebra. So that then started this sort of thought process about, well, what is a cultural underpinning of mathematics? What are we really looking at here? What is maths in a sense? So I had to think through that process. And I suppose for me, when I thought through that process, maths really is grounded in the world that we live in. That's like, you know, because it is about a knowledge system. So we've got this grounding within within the world we live in. As people, we interpret that and we create stuff to represent that. And we do that in many, many different ways, you know, through language, through art, through song, through story, all these ways that we actually create meaning for, what's, for the world around us and to understand that for ourselves in some form. And maths is no different to that. So maths is really, for me, you know, the creation of all these symbols that are put together to really tell a story, um, but each of those symbols are, and and you know each of the each of the symbolism is actually connected to the world around us. So it, it's it's part of us because we create it, but it's also part of the world around us. And the idea too within the education I do is that if we really understand the conceptual underpinnings of what the symbols are telling us, 
and, and why they're put together in the way they are, then we also can teach students to reflect on what that means and means for them. And to me, that would breathe more life into learning of mathematics. Because they, they, historically, what, the way that we, we learn mathematics for the school system is very much a disconnected form of knowledge. Where you just got to learn it because it's good for you. You know, and, and a lot of the stuff students will say is, why am I learning this? I'm never ever going to use this ever again. This is useless. All that sort of stuff because it is about disconnection at this point in time. So what I'm trying to do is to build that connection back with people and the way they see the world. That's such a inspiring story. And I love that um, Aileen Morton Robinson's a part of that. Distinguished Professor Aileen Morton Robinson's had a little hand in a lot of careers, I think, by giving people a nudge in a particular direction. But I think it's really great to, you know, un, uh, underscore the fact that actually within your own discipline, you know, you actually have done some incredibly important work. And if people wanted to dive into some of that, I'd recommend they had a look at some of the materials of yours that are on your website at um, UTS if they want to read a little bit of some of these really interesting areas that you've dived into. I just want to talk a little bit more about how you engage young people with uh, mathematics because I think it speaks to the challenges of getting young First Nations people interested in STEM subjects, which of course is science, technology, engineering and maths. And, you know, I don't want to structure that in a deficit model because I think the way that you approach it is really proactive. So can you talk a bit about the sorts of exercises you have uh, young people do to get them to see the world differently as you've just described it? Yeah, look, I, th I think there's a lot of room within mathematics, and um, particularly through Aboriginal educators, to really get them to understand the sophistication of our people. Because we often, you know, through this colonisation process, through the notion of uh, terra nullius, the land belonging to no one, I think a lot of people, we still suffer from this view that we are primitive, simplistic people. And you see that through different forms, through, 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 the, through the media and so forth. But I think even for our kids, we don't really clearly get that message, you know, because a lot of our families are living in communities there, you know, sometimes they're surviving day by day, you know, and it's not necessarily a conversation around the, around the dinner table. But, you know, I think there's room to really reinforce that, you know. Um, I think too, you know, uh, one thing you, you can probably get from my story is that I've really had a uh, Western education I did when when I went back from Toowoomba to Stradbroke as a kid, there was there was a form of Aboriginal education there, which you don't even realise you're getting a lot of a lot of the time. But when you reflect on it, you go, oh yeah, they were teaching me that, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. But I, in some respects, I you know you you find yourself sort of pulled into this Western education system, and it, it's quite all-consuming. And then what I find myself doing at this point in my life is to really go back and think about, well, you know. What, you know, who are our people and and how can I learn more about our people and knowledge systems and things like that. Um, you know, and I, and I think what's helped me too is I've, I've been in many, many different communities, but in particular, I want to um, um, talk about Yedakala in, in Arnhem Land. So I had the privilege of working with them um, and I want to recognise my aunties, so Kathy McMahon, you know, Mirki Ganambar, um, Bumpoy Whitehead and also Yama Yenapinya. So I just wanted to recognise those people out there who's been patient with me and teaching with me and we share, share ideas together, which has been fantastic. And even going to that community, for me, because we, um, I don't know if you feel the same thing, but a lot of the times the system tells us that we're different from people in these first language speaking communities or we're, you know, we're urban kids, they're rural kids, you know, they're remote kids. Um, and I think for me, I really needed to experience is this narrative really true? Or is it just one of those ways of dividing us up? You know, <laughs> you know I took time to to be part of of that community and and talking with those people and hearing what they have to say. And and the important part of that community too was that they've had the two way education up there since the eighties. And one of the first, I will say that Mandawayan Abinu, he he was the first Yungal principal up there, and and he set up that notion that he really wants. Younger kids would be grounded within younger knowledge, language, and so forth, but also know or in, know about the Western education system. So he actually started looking at the relationships between not knowledge systems. One thing that he said in the, in the 80s was that mathematics is one of the strong connections between younger knowledge and Western knowledge. And I, that was, to me, was one of the reasons I wanted to go there to to understand what what was meant by that. 
really he was sort of talking about was that he saw the kingship system, which they call um, Gurutu up there, mm-hmm. is one of those sort of forms of mathematics. And if, you, if you've ever seen that sort of kingship system drawn down, they are very complex. And the reason they're complex is because the philosophy of our people, and this is all people across Australia, I believe, is that we built personal kingship with the environmental system around us. So if you're going to do that, then what you're going to do is create quite a complex you know, societal or kingship system that connects people. It's not just connecting people together, it's connecting people to country and to animals, plants, stars, sky, all that stuff. And to me, that really blows your mind because it's almost like a living mathematical model. Within that understanding, there's so much mathematical thinking, so much mathematical thinking, and so much we can draw on, you know. Even the fact that kingship systems are all based on cycles, you know, and I'll keep on saying we're the only people who put ourselves on a cycle. And so it wasn't just linear, you know, going up to grandparents, great-grandparents. It was actually on a cycle. So it actually cycles back all the time. And when you think about that in connection to the world around us, the whole world works in cycles. And this is part of this mapping, I believe, to that that system. And that construct becomes very strongly important and understandable. So So a child who's actually thinking through the kingship system actually has to think about how he's related through interconnecting cycles. Of people, which is really, really interesting. And, and when you start getting introduced to the system, it's quite a complex way of thinking. But mm-hmm. you have children growing up with this type of thinking, which I, which I will refer to as a systems thinking from a very early age. And that's really fundamentally important for math, science, or any STEM career. So for me, there's a lot to offer from our sophistication of our people, not to override it with maths or the science, but to value it and build the connections between that and educating within mathematics. So to sort of answer what you're trying to get at is what activities that we do with kids. Um, you know, I have done kingship-type activities in, with permission with, with from, uh, from uh, my aunties up there, Yudhikala, to use um, the Yongle kingship system and to show other kids, you know. And I said, even though this doesn't belong to your community, it, you know, it, it belongs up there at Yudhikala. But I say that we used to have these sorts of systems all over Australia, you know. And I get them to think about what that system means. And, and then once you start looking at the cycles, you then can actually teach something like um, a sine function. But it's all done through the lens of Aboriginal kinship systems and what it means to actually be on a cycle and how you know things like the moon works and how, why we get tides the way we get tides and, and, and all this sort of stuff. I feel poor for the fact of having run out of time with you and I feel like we could just be talking for so much longer. I had heaps more questions, so you have to promise me, Professor Chris Matthews, that you'll come back another time and we can keep talking about your really interesting work. Yeah, no, God, I do want to come back and have a yarn with you because I think there's a lot more to talk to. <laughs> I feel like that too. I feel like we're just scraping the surface, which is great because it just shows how, how much more there is to explore in these knowledge systems. But thank you so much for being such a great role model in this space for us all, for you know helping us see mathematics in a really different cultural lens and engaging us with it, and for joining us on Speaking Out this evening. Thank you very much and look forward to the next time. Chris Matthews is the Associate Dean, Indigenous Leadership and Engagement in the Science Faculty at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt, and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app, and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Encouraging a love of science in young people while developing their respect for Indigenous knowledge has inspired my next guest to write his first children's book at the age of 29. Corey Tutt is also the founder of the charity Deadly Science, and he'll be joining me shortly. But first, a song by Bart Willoughby. This is a cover of the 1979 hit by my sex, Computer Games.
Willoughby there with the track Computer Games. This is Speaking Out, a national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs show produced and presented by Indigenous broadcasters on ABC Radio. For many First Nations students, the thought of following a career in science is out of their reach. The few who have forged a pathway into the sector say they've had to overcome significant barriers posed to people from marginalised communities or low socioeconomic and culturally diverse backgrounds. But a new generation of First Nations scientists are looking to change that. Camilleroy man Corey Tutt is a keen science communicator and is heading a campaign to encourage First Nations kids to pursue a career in science. He is the founder and CEO of the charity Deadly Science and has just released his first book, The First Scientist's Deadly Invention and Innovations from Australia's First People. Corey, welcome to Speaking Out. Yama, and thank you for having me on your wonderful program. Now, before we dive into this great new book, can you tell us where you grew up and what shaped your worldview? I grew up in a place called Ewan Country, which is down on the south coast of New Zealand. I guess my worldview is kind of a couple of things that happened. My father left my mum really young. I was two years old. I might have been just under two. And I was raised by my sister and mum. You know, that taught me how to be a really empathetic person because, you know, the strong, generally the empathy in our lives comes from the strong women in our lives. And, you know, I witnessed a few tragic accidents as a young man. And I think that I got an appreciation for how short life is. And then I guess the thing that's really striking about what you've done is um, the way that you've engaged with Indigenous knowledges so deeply. So where did your early appreciation come from the richness of your own culture? As probably most people would know when they hear about me, I'm a proud Gamilaroi man and my grandfather was... You know, he's the best natural scientist I'd ever met. And actually, the reason why I'm literate today 
is really because of him. And he didn't get the opportunity to learn how to read, but he provided me, I think, was the catalyst for me, you know, educating myself and and learning how to read. And that was called Reptiles in Colour by Harold Cogger. And so I guess the interested in too is that, you know, when I went through the school system, there was kind of a prejudice that as First Nations kids, we wouldn't be interested or any good at science and maths. And I actually got taken out of economics and put into home science, which is a bit funny because I can't cook. But, but I, there's such a prejudice around. So I'm just wondering how it was that you decided that this was what you wanted to do. You've obviously become very passionate about working in the space to engage young First Nations people with and also introduce it to other young people. What was it about that that drew you into that particular space? Well, if we get if we jump back in the DeLorean and we go back in time, I as a child I was moving around around a lot of Australia. So I lived in a place called Tumby Bay in South Australia. I lived in Bulli and, and Dapdo and the Illawarra region and the South Coast and I was kind of in and out of those areas as a kid. And the only real constant in my life was all the animals that I would find and the reptiles. And that was the way that I connected with other children was I had all the party facts. So I was in colour book, but, you know, I'd be the kid picking up the blue tongue lizard in the street. And of course, all the other kids want to talk to that kid. So it was a, it was a way to connect with people. But, you know, I had read so many reptile books as a kid. And I just used to enjoy that I was sort of reared on Harry Butler tapes. Oh, gosh. I <laughs> um, remember Harry Butler. <laughs> yeah. So because, you know, we didn't have a lot. So a lot of Harry Butler stuff ended up at the Salvos and ended up at, like, secondhand shops. And I would get $5 off my pop every year, and I'd probably more often than not buy books or Harry Butler dollars. So I used to love watching Harry Butler and, and Rod Brettle and, and all these guys, and I'm becoming that and because I, I used to – make a lot of friends when I was connecting with animals and stuff like that. So by the time I was 16, I sat across my careers advisor and he said, what do you want to be when you leave school? Which is the you know stereotypical question that everyone gets asked. And he, he goes, oh, I sort of replied and said, I want to be a zookeeper. I want to be a wildlife documenter. And I want to be an ABC sports commentator because I knew I could talk and that could fund the other two. <laughs> he his response to me was striking in the sense of it was it was a very similar response my sister got actually but you know he sort of said you should probably stick to a trade because if you don't stick to a trade and probably leave school now you'll probably end up getting into trouble or worse you'll end up probably dying at a young age and I don't want that for you and you know I was a bit spurred on I always was determined to prove people wrong um you know, I played rugby league as a kid and I was quite small and, you know, I was so determined that, you know, if I didn't make that team to prove that I could make that team, I will tackle everyone on my team just to prove it. And I didn't like the word can't. And I didn't like people putting limitations on my life because these limitations were assessed on my race, um, my social economic standing, you know, being a single mum and older sister and you know, I never wanted that to be my the reason why people thought that I couldn't do things. That sounds like a, a fairly common experience for First Nations students. I just know from working in the education sector that you run up against people who underestimate you because of their own prejudices and f- feel they're, they're being well-intentioned when they send you on a different path. But you've kind of, you know, ignored all of that and already made it an amazing and wonderful contribution. The book is beautiful and full of facts, and I want to dig into a couple of things in a minute. But I was just wondering if you could talk to us about, obviously you would have had a lot of knowledge when you came together to put the, the book together, but what were the things that surprised you most when you were actually compiling the book? Um Actually, you know, when when I think about it, the First Nations science stuff doesn't surprise me because uh, our mob are the, the oldest scientists, we're the oldest living culture in the world, and we all know we all know the stuff that our, our cultures bring, the beauty, the beauty, the song lines, the the knowledge. Surprised me a lot with doing research for the book was how much of this knowledge actually is out there in day to day mainstream Australia. You know, for example, if you have ants in your house, it generally means rain, right? bit of science because you know we mobs actually used to predict rain by the way the ants are moving on the ground 
you know, even even something like the Blackhawk or twos flying over in a certain direction means that the weather direction because they're trying to escape the weather. That comes that those old sort of sayings that we get taught when we're young, they come from science. So the thing that surprised me a lot was that you know this stuff has been ingrained in Australian culture. Just it just hasn't been properly acknowledged. The fact that you know the New South Wales, the Victorian, the course. Um, even the Northern Territory Police Force, right up until recently, hired Aboriginal bush trackers to find people missing in the bush. Now, if that's not forensic science, then I'll eat my hat because it might not be aluminol, might not be spraying aluminol to find, but the fact that we had all this technology in the 80s and the 90s still, and we we still hired people to find people missing in the bush, you know, shows that our people had a way of, of understanding the land and observing second to none. And it was greater than the technology at the time. I do love that about the book. It, you know, it does speak a broader number of Australians are now becoming more aware of and interested in like, you know, fire burning and land management. They understand the tech, you know, how brilliant the technology of the boomerang is. But I think one of the things that I love about how you actually bring out a whole range of other ways and forensic science is one of those things. Another one that I think there is a sort of uh, increasing interest in understanding the complexity of was, can you tell us a little bit about what you've included in the book about our first astronomers? Well, yeah, and, and even in my Camilleroid culture, you know, we, we have such a great relationship with the stars. You know, we look for the dark emu in the sky, the constellation, which is not counting the white patches, it's actually counting the dark patches in between the stars. So it's the opposite of the Western system. And it, and it creates an emu. And depending on the season, it tells us what's happening on the land. So if the emu's facing a certain way, it means that we go and collect the emu eggs or we go on an emu hunt, perhaps. But it also, you know, if we, we go across the nations, it, it can, like a, a certain observation with a star, like maybe even a, might indicate the gases going a certain way and that there, there's rain on the way or, or a storm on the way. Or it might be time to harvest. So it might be time to harvest the yams when this when particular stars come out. So it's really taking on vation that is on land and putting it into the sky so they can tell us the lessons and the and the answers to what's happening on land as well. So there is quite a problem with that though. And the problem is now is that the year is twenty twenty one and we are putting an incredible amount of satellites up into the sky. And that you know, the old Steve Irwin saying is don't muck with it. It's very much similar now because we have so much space junk in the sky that a lot of these stories are getting destroyed. We have this artificial light in the sky that is, is making these stars not appear as bright. And, and one good example for the listeners is, is that if you stare at the night sky in, in Sydney to maybe three stars, but if you go out to Canamble or where there's no light pollution, the whole sky is lit up with stars. And that, unfortunately, in the future, if we continue to put these satellites up there and continue to put things in space, is going to disappear. Another area that I thought was really cleverly done was your chapter on the first chemists. And I think people do understand that there's an enormous knowledge that our elders particularly have about bush medicine, but you go much deeper than that in terms of helping to our science behind that. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the things you explore in terms of our first chemists? Well, I guess, and then the other thing as well, like if you have a piece of um, First Nations art in your wall at home, I challenge you to go find the story of that because every single piece of artwork has a story and, and it, the story can be quite amazing and long and, and it's, it's something that is shared. But to make that story possible, someone has to mix the ochres, the minerals, you know, to make these paints, you know, potentially even, you know, emu egg yolk to, to seal it so it lasts you know, for many years, so that story can continue to be told. So I, my challenge is to listeners is when you see a piece of Indigenous art from anywhere in the world, doesn't matter, have a greater appreciation for it because this thing has been designed for people to enjoy and to to learn and be proud of for, for generations. If that's not chemistry, then what is? That's what we need to have the conversation about. You know, the fact that most Australians could walk down a, a shopping aisle in Coles and Woolworths and see Baralum, which is tea tree oil, 
and not know that that is probably one of the, the oldest bush medicines. And that comes from our people. You know, we need to, as a society, be better at acknowledging that and acknowledging what is science. And, and I'll tell you something really funny, right? So some bozo once, he goes, well, if your people were such great scientists, how come they didn't wear lab coats? <laughs> um, and, I, and, and he sort of said to me, oh, where's the wheel? But, like, we didn't need wheels. You know, we didn't need it because we had everything we needed, and that's sustainability. So one of the things I did with first scientists is I put all the black fellas in lab coats. The illustrations are beautiful. Well, the thing is, is that like the images we normally see of Albert Einstein's and Thomas Edison's, and mind you, they never wore lab coats, by the way. But the thing is, is that a lab coat is just a bit of PPE. It stops you from being burnt by chemicals. It's not defined by race. It's not defined by sexuality, defined by, you know, if you're male or female, it's just a bit of PPE. So we need to change the image of who wears a lab coat and we need to decolonise the lab coat because, you know, as you'll find out, our mob have been doing science for 65,000 plus years and I love sport and art, but they're not the be-all and end-all for our people. I have to say, I have a, I love uh, crime investigation. So I was very interested in your first forensic scientist chapters as well, which I guess speaks to the fact that you've done this, as I just mentioned, the beautiful illustrations by Black Douglas as a children's book. But I have to say, uh, there's a copy in my library and I just love it. So what's been the reaction to the book since it's come out? Well, I just want to say I'm a massive Jew, um, hence why I included forensic scientists in there. And I absolutely loved researching, you know, stuff about Ned Kelly and, and all that because there's a lot there that we don't get taught in schools. And for me, the, the book's been really great. I remember the first scientist in my local bookshop and I kind of cheekily pulled out a pen and I wrote a message in there and it was, Dear Deadly Scientists, I hope this book and purpose because they are the two ingredients that we all need and I hope that it inspires you to to find out more about your deadly side, find out more about the culture and more about the science and, and what was here before and what is here now because the peoples are still doing science. Whether that's a young ranger working in the Kirikara Rangers to, to save the bilby or the night parrot, if that's not science, then what is? And maybe we should just... If it's only meant for one demographic of people, let's just change the word science to better suit that because I think that that's got to start the conversation. I'm feeling a bit sad that mine doesn't have a, something in the front from you, but next time I see you, I'm going to get you to sign it. Uh, put something with to inspire me as if the book hasn't already. You must have seen an increase in interest in First Nations science and knowledge since you've been doing this work from the general public. Do you feel that there's a greater engagement with, with those ideas? People are no longer erroneously Stone Age culture. Oh, look, this is one of those situations where we're at a, a systematic change where, you know, people are, are starting to wise up a little bit and realise that the people that came before us, you know, potentially were a little bit racist and were racist and some people are going to be stuck behind and we can't kill them with hate, you know, because we become prisoners of our own hate. We need to educate, and if they're not willing to be educated, we just need to, you know, we can't become prisoners of our own anger because what's getting us through is our love. And, that, and that what, what has made our culture survive is the fact that the love we have for our mobs and our ch each other and our families. And I, I think, you know, sometimes we just need to, some of these extreme people that, that write things online and be pretty stupid things really, but we don't need to fuel their fire. You know, and I think that everyone's sort of changing as we go. You know, we're doing welcome to countries and acknowledgements to country. And I, I would say to people that, you know, when, when you do an acknowledgement, don't download one off the internet. You know, learn, learn about your first people in your area. Make it individualised. You know, feel it. Don't do it because you feel like you have to. Do it because you want to. Do it because you, you care about our First Nations people. And... I think if everyone accepts some really, really bad things happened and we, we can accept the good things that our culture has, you know, our first people invented bread. Like they looked at the stars and they predicted, you know, and if we, if we draw parallels to the pyramids, the pyramids are 4,000 years old and Egypt celebrate the pyramids because they're a massive tourist attraction, but they're also 
culturally significant to their country. Now, if we took a bit of that that pride and we put that into our First Nations people, which we're, we're, we're doing, but we're doing slowly, then, you know, we have kids, instead of, you know, learning, you know, they're learning their local language and their, their school or like the, you know, they're appreciating whose lands are on. This is what's going to drive us forward. And I really want to see that. I want to see, you know, I'm happy with where we're going, but it's not enough yet. You know, we've still got kids being locked up as young as 10 in the NT and what's happening to their education? Like, why why are we still doing this? We've got a lot to work on, but we're getting... We can't kill the things that make us unhappy with hate. We've got to cure them with love and care for each other. What's your advice to the equivalent of a, a young Corey, male or female, uh, who would be seeking um, career advice at this time on, on the pathways possible through science? Your road. It's an individual road. You can have blinkers on if you need, but, you know, even the greatest thing wheels every now and again, and you're going to hit a few potholes, you're going to hit a few bumps and lumps along the way. And But first and foremost, what makes you safe on your journey is being a good, empathetic person. Because if you're empathetic and you care, and you care enough of you do, your purpose will be really simple, and they'll be using today to make tomorrow better. And that's what science is about, isn't it? It's about creating a better tomorrow. So I would say to young people, don't be too hard on yourselves realize that you're going to have some bumps and, you know, problems along the way, but surround yourself with those who care and can be your training wheels, just like the cyclists. And it is okay to use training wheels, even as an adult. And if you're a good person, will eventually lead to where you need to be. Now, Corey, you recently won a prestigious Eureka Prize for STEM inclusion. Anyone listening to our conversation tonight is not going to be surprised to hear that. And I know that is not why you do this work, but how did it feel that work recognised in such a forum? Uh, it was incredible. Um, I was actually quite speechless when my name got read out and, and Team Deadly Science. I, the thing is for me is this, as much as this is an achievability, and it's a responsibility for me to take this award out to schools. So in the future, maybe next year, maybe the year after, my the kids that look up to me are winning the top prizes in science. They're winning Eurekas. Winning it for being inclusive. They're not winning it for being a citizen scientist. They are winning it because they deserve it. And they all do. And I think that this this award for me and, and what I'm going to do with this award is I'm going to make it make sure that I work with that comes across deadly science is going to feel like they have an opportunity to, to grow into this and to, you know, to one day lead science for our people and, and win these awards because this, this award is wasted sitting on my shelf. I want kids to be able to hold it. I want kids to be able to experience it because if we don't do that, then it just becomes another award on the shelf and it's wasted. But it, and it's, it's something that I'm so grateful to have. Well, Corey, thank you so much for your work. Thanks for being such a great inspiration. Thank you for this fabulous book and for solving one of the uh, challenges of what I'm going to get my nephews for Christmas. <laughs> um, and thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out this evening. I'm so grateful for you having me and thank you. And I hope everyone's staying safely in COVID and, and just know that you're not alone. And if you need to reach out to someone, reach out to them and, and stay deadly always. That's Corey Tutt, founder and CEO of the charity Deadly Science and author of the book, The First Scientists, Deadly Inventions and Innovations from Australia's First People. To take us out tonight, some more music. This next song is by Thelma Plum and is called Homecoming Queen.
Thelma Plum there with Homecoming Queen. Well, that's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.